uh, those of you who have come uh, for the baptism, we will get to it. Uh, but in many ways, the most important part of the service this morning is what we're about to do now. Uh, because the baptism, uh, the water, and the people going under the water, and then coming back out of the water, is just a sign of something. It's uh, a picture of something. And what um, I'm going to do now in this sermon is try to explain uh, what uh, the symbolism uh, of the water and uh, the baptism uh, is all about. And when we turn to the Bible, uh, the Word of God, where we have uh, the ordinance of baptism, we don't decide as a church what we do. We are told by God in his word how we are to do things. And he's given baptism as one of the sacraments. And a sacrament is an outward sign of an inner reality. And when you look at the Bible, there isn't that much about baptism. The person that baptized the most people in the Bible is the one that we heard about in the reading. His name was John. And he baptized so many people, he was given the nickname John the Baptist. And even though he baptized a huge number of people, and I was privileged a few months ago to see the place on the River Jordan, thankfully we're not baptizing in the River Taff, but John baptized in the River Jordan, and I stood uh, near the spot where probably John did his baptisms. And what surprised me about the River Jordan was how small it is and how shallow it is. Unless there's a storm flow, it, it really is a very small river. So how, how John managed to fully immerse all those people, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm saying that because I'm scared of going <laughs> down the steps into the water. But John is the one that we need to turn to uh, if we want to understand something about baptism. And then John didn't preach about baptism. Isn't that interesting? He preached a lot about repentance, which means turning away from our sin and what's wrong in God's eyes and turning to Jesus Christ. And that's what these people that were going to witness their baptism have done. And yet, in spite of all of that, you can say that if you had to sum up John the Baptist's preaching, that it was about repentance. What John really focused on is what I want us to look at this morning. It's found in two verses that we had in the reading Verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then a little further down, verse 36, behold the Lamb of God. What a sermon. I think it's one of the shortest sermons ever preached. And maybe some of you are wishing that the sermon this morning was going to be as brief. I'm going to try and make it as short as possible, but... What a sermon. Behold, look at the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world. Do you want to know what baptism is all about? There it is. Do you want to know what the message of Christianity is? There it is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now then, let me try and open it up. The first thing, this phrase, the Lamb of God, isn't that a strange thing to say? What was happening? Uh, John uh, was busy baptizing people. He had huge crowds all around him. And then he saw a particular person. He knew this person because it was his cousin. And he had uh, grown up in Nazareth, not far from where he was baptizing. And this person didn't look that special. Uh, he looked a bit older than he was, uh, but he would have been the same as all the other people round about. He was probably a poor person because his earthly father was a carpenter and he would have been an ordinary looking person. He wouldn't have had the religious clothing. And yet John points at this one person and says, he's the lamb of God. What a strange thing to call a person. Have you ever thought, why would John say that person is a lamb? Do you think people look like lambs? I've never come across a person who said so-and-so looks like a lamb. Now, what John is saying here, and the people that were listening were Jews, so they were familiar with the Old Testament. What John is saying is, look at that person. He is the most significant person in, not just in the crowd that is around about here. He is the most significant person in the whole universe. And I want to say the same thing about Jesus Christ this morning. Jesus Christ is the Old Testament's Lamb of God, fulfilled in a real human being. Now then, I just want to open up this statement, Lamb of God. I know I'm uh, uh, charting through dangerous waters here because there is so much vegetarianism coming in today. I don't know how many of you are vegetarian. I wouldn't mind becoming a vegetarian because it actually makes you feel better inside. But the people of God in the Old Testament weren't vegetarians. I don't know what animal rights activists would have made of the religion of the Old Testament. Because do you know what? Every day of the year, two lambs were slain, were killed as a sacrifice in the temple. There would have been blood everywhere. So two lambs every day. Think about that. Think about how many lambs in a one year. Think about uh, all the decades and the centuries of the Old Testament. And not just the two lambs. Uh, people would be able to bring their own personal sacrifice, their own lamb or another animal. All this emphasis on a lamb being sacrificed, all the blood going everywhere. Now, God isn't a cruel God. He wasn't doing that because it had it against animals. He was trying to teach his people and us one important lesson. Do you know what it was? There's a verse in the New Testament which says, listen to this, without shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. 
Do you know what that verse says? Unless there's a sacrifice, God who is holy, as Howell prayed, God who is so pure, he, he can't tolerate impurity. Unless there's a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice that uh, deals with the impurity, that takes away the guilt, that cleanses the sin, unless there's blood, that holy God can't forgive you and me. How vivid his people must have uh, been reminded of that daily. There must be blood. I can't stand before a holy God in my own righteousness. Uh, Howell said it to the children. The Bible says it's even clearer. There is none righteous. No, not one. Uh, I like the way one commentator put it. The question throughout the Old Testament is what Isaac asked Abraham, his father, as they were about to offer a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Uh, Isaac saw that they had everything apart from one thing. They didn't have an animal to offer as a sacrifice. And Isaac asked Abraham, where is the lamb? Isn't that the question throughout the Old Testament? Where is the lamb? I can imagine even the people going into the temple and seeing the lambs being sacrificed. There's something inside of them which is crying out, for reality, where is the real lamb? How can the blood of an animal, whether it's a lamb or a bull or a goat, ever give my guilty conscience peace? Where is that person that's going to come? And maybe even as we are gathered here in a church this morning, and, you know, we are all, well, those of us who come here, we're all fairly religious we're all fairly good people, aren't we? We don't do wrong things in that sense. But the same question applies to us. Where is the righteous one here this morning? Where is the person who can say, I'm spotless. I can stand before a holy God on my own two feet. Where is that person? There is none righteous. No, not one. If we are going to be forgiven, if we are going to have a hope of heaven, we can't do it. What these people are saying in going into the baptism pool is we can't do it. And we've been remembering the Second World War recently. I haven't got all the details in my head, but there was a fighter pilot in the Second World War. He was either involved in the terrible bombings of the German cities toward the end of the war, cities like Dresden, or he was involved in dropping the atomic bomb in Hiroshima. And this person, after the war, he had a breakdown, and he had a terrible guilt about what he had done. And he went around all the different churches, and they wouldn't give him peace. And then one day, he went to Westminster Chapel uh, near Buckingham Palace, uh, in the centre of London, and he heard a man who was a medical doctor, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, preaching, and he was spoken to. And do you know what he said? He said to Dr. Martin, I've been around all these different chapels, and I'm fed up of hearing sentimental notions about the love of God. That's what he said. I'm fed up 
of hearing woolly statements about it's all right, God is love. And this is the first time I've heard about something that can give my guilty conscience peace because you're telling me God is holy and wrong must be punished. And you've told me that it's in Jesus Christ that that happens. My friends, we preach the love of God in Jesus Christ, but it is not sentimental love. It's love that's strong as death. It's love that can give you peace with God, that can forgive you a sin, that can open the door to heaven itself for you this morning. Where is the Lamb? Listen to John. Behold, there is the Lamb of God. There is the perfect human being, the only perfect man to have walked this planet. Uh, and do you know what? In the Old Testament, if a lamb had to be sacrificed, the people had to bring the lamb. Uh, on the feast of Passover, the greatest feast, people had to buy the lambs. They had to make their own arrangements. Praise God, Jesus Christ has been provided by God himself for you and for me. And you know, he's not just the perfect human being. He is Christ. That means anointed of God. He is the Son of God. 100% divine, 100% human, one person. I love him because he's my savior. And these people are confessing he's their savior as well. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Uh, do, do, you, do you know... Uh, like righteous religious people do, do, do you know how stuffy some of them can be do, do, do you know how unapproachable they can be do you know when when you're feeling terrible uh, that they are the last people you would go to talk to Jesus Christ is completely different oh do you know what Jesus Christ said once? A bruised reed I will not break. The Lamb of God. Then secondly, he came to do something. He came to do something who takes away the sin of the world. Um, I was a school teacher, believe it or not, before I became a pastor. And we had assemblies in the school I was teaching in. I sometimes did rewrite some of the assemblies if I was taking them. <laughs> and I can remember one assembly, the sports teacher, a big burly man who had no interest in a church, he had to take the assembly and give the message. And the poor man, it was Christmas time, he got it wrong. He mixed Easter up with Christmas. And everybody was laughing. But I thought, you made a mistake, but you got it right. You got it right. You see, we'll be remembering in a few weeks' time the baby Jesus being lain in a wooden crib, a manger. He didn't just come to do that. 33 years later, that same Jesus 
is going to be nailed to a wooden cross. And that's what he came into this world to do. He didn't come to be our example. He becomes our example once we start following him like these brothers and sisters have done. But before we are saved, Jesus isn't our example because he's too perfect. He didn't come primarily to preach sermons. He did preach wonderful sermons, but those sermons are for those who have already come to believe in him. What Jesus Christ came to do for you and for me is die on a cross. He is the Lamb of God. What happened to the lambs in the Old Testament? They were sacrificed by the priest. They were brought by the people. What happened on the cross at Calvary? Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the priest. Jesus Christ wasn't brought by any person. He was sent by God the Father. And when the time was right, he came and was born of a virgin and grew up perfect. And then he went and he hung on a cruel cross. And I love the fact that he died there for me. Did he die for you? Can you say, I was there when they crucified my Lord? Not in person, but my sins were on him. In our translation, it says the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. It's better translated, who bears away the sin. That's good, isn't it? He takes upon himself the load of sin. Like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most famous books ever written in the English language. It starts off with a man carrying the guilt of his sin and he's unable to do anything about it. And then he comes to a cross and he sees one hanging on that cross and the load falls from off his back and is gone forever. That's what happens when we are saved. Whenever I'm ill and my mind can't cope with um, reading big, weighty theological tomes, I always turn to C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. Have you ever read The Chronicles of Narnia? If you've never read The Chronicles of Narnia, you've really got to. The most famous one is The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And the lion, Aslan, is a picture of Jesus Christ. And the highlight of the lion and the witch of the wardrobe is one of the Pevensey children, Edmund. Um, you'll know if you've read it who I'm referring to. Edmund. He's a real rascal. He betrays the rest of the children. And he's guilty. He's guilty. And this is what happens. Aslan knows all about this. And Aslan says, I'm going to deal with your guilt. And one night, when everybody else is asleep, Aslan, by himself, goes to a stone table set on a hill. And there, Aslan, the creator of Narnia, is put to death. And all the horrible uh, devils and ghouls and hobgoblins and witches, they all descend on Aslan. And he takes the punishment for guilty Edmund, Aslan is killed. But of course, the stone table breaks and after three days, Aslan is risen from the dead. And he did that for guilty Edmund. 
Jesus Christ on the cross did that for guilty me. But what John says, he takes away the sin of the world. Can I just give you a little Old Testament uh, history here? At the start of the Old Testament, God said, one lamb for one person. One lamb for one person. By the time you get to the Exodus, one lamb for a family. So the lamb is signifying that the guilt, not just of one person, but of a whole family, is taken away. By the time you come to the nation of Israel, on the Day of Atonement, one lamb for the whole country. And when you come to the New Testament, one lamb for the whole world. Wow. One person can take not just the weight of my sin, and that's big enough. What's the capacity in Jesus Christ, especially in his blood, which points to a sacrificial death? What's the capacity when we used to have student lunch that weren't just for students, but for everybody? We didn't have enough capacity in the hall. What's the capacity in the blood of the Son of God? There's enough for the whole universe, if needs be. Praise be to his name. When I was in Israel, um, I'm looking at the clock, I don't want to be too long, but when I was in Israel, uh, I was on a trip, and they heard I was a minister, so they called me reverend. I don't, I don't like being called reverend, right? So don't call me reverend afterwards. And when we, when we were on the Sea of Galilee, the tour guide was telling me, ooh, uh, you can go to a shop afterwards and buy Galilean water. Galilean water. So that the next time you have to baptize people, she didn't realize that we immersed people. <laughs> she thought I only sprinkled people, so a little bottle is not going to fill that, is it? <laughs> she thought, because it's Galilean water, you know, that's going to confer something special upon you getting baptized. What utter nonsense. This is Cardiff water. Ga Galilean water. Who cares? What matters is these people have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we have our supplements, and I'm sure it will come out soon, we will be able to sing, there is power in the blood. Wonder working power and it starts that chorus would you be free from what from your burden of sin from the weight transfer it to the only one who can can you do that not just those getting baptized but can we all say i lay my sins on jesus the spotless lamb of god and very quickly i've got one last thing to say john doesn't just Say, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He uses one little word at the start. Behold. That ye old English for look. Look to Jesus. It's interesting. John, the great preacher on repentance, says in effect, look 
to Jesus. What is repentance and faith? What is turning from sin? Well, it's simply this. I'm turning from sin. I can't do it in my own strength. I need Jesus. I'm turning to Jesus. And I'm trusting in him. Look. It's so simple. Look. I'm using my imagination now. I can imagine the crowd listening to John. And I can imagine some of them not looking to Jesus, but looking to John. Looking to John. Thinking, John, you are the great preacher. You are blessed of God. You stand between us and God. John says, no point looking to me. Look to Jesus. My friends, don't look to me. I, I can't do anything for you in terms of your guilt. All I can do is point to Jesus Christ. You know, you've got a pastor here who shares in the same afflictions as some of you are going through. I, I, I'm just a weak vessel. But my Savior is strong. Look to Jesus. I, I can imagine some... Uh, you know, Israel is a bit like Wales. So I can imagine some sitting there and looking within and waiting for some experience to come upon them <laughs> before they can follow Jesus. John is saying, look, what, why are you waiting for the miracle to come? That's not going to happen. Look to Jesus and then the feelings will follow. I can imagine some you know, trying to say, we've got to organise something. You, you know, when we say that in Wales, we've got to organise something. Do you know what happens? We say, let's form a committee. Let's form a committee. And then, let's form a subcommittee. If you never want to get anything done, let's form a committee. I can imagine people trying to form a committee let's form a committee to deal with our sins let's form a committee to deal with the problems of society let's form a committee to deal with the romans and uh, their uh, unfair rule in palestine look to jesus christ there's nothing wrong with committees in their place look I'm going to finish quoting these words. Do you know what, what my desire for our church is? Is that you'll have a pastor who's looking to Jesus. Like John, I'm looking to Jesus. Have you ever tried doing this? I'm not recommending it, but when you go out of church or maybe in Queen Street in the Christmas uh, crowds, stop in the middle of the street and just look at, look at an object and just stay there. Apparently, if you do that, you'll get other people thinking, what's happening here? They're, they're looking at something. <laughs> and they'll start joining you and ask, what, what are you looking at? And then apparently this has happened. You'll get a large crowd and they're all looking at nothing. <laughs> but we're not looking at nothing. We're looking at the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And imagine what would happen if I, as your pastor, looked to Jesus. And then not just these getting baptized, but other people were joining us looking to Jesus. And a great crowd would gather.
looking to Jesus. You don't stop looking to Jesus when you're saved. You begin looking at him, and you keep on looking. As many here know, I've been suffering from burnout, and I'm slowly recovering. I'm on a journey. But that doesn't mean that it's all straight. It means it's up and down, like that. And it's a bit like that, following Jesus Christ. Oh, didn't we look at him so easily when we first saw him? And for months, maybe, we kept looking. We weren't distracted. But then it's so easy, isn't it, to have blips. You suddenly get distracted by something. But then, oh, we look again at him. It's a journey. I want to say to those who are Christians here, keep looking. Stare at him until your eyes can look no more. And I just want to finish by quoting this. There is life. Do you know the words? There is life for a look. That's all it takes. You don't have to have great faith. You don't have to have great repentance. You don't have to have great experience. There is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. Then look, sinner. Look unto him and be saved unto him who was nailed to the tree. It is not thy tears of repentance or prayers, but the blood that atones for the soul. On him then who shed it, thou mayest at once the weight, the burden, the load of iniquity. Roll. Isn't that wonderful? Roll your sin on Jesus Christ. And once you've rolled your sin on him, why don't you... Roll yourself on him, if that's such a term. Lean on me, says Jesus Christ. Keep leaning. And when you are weak, you are strong in me.